Hi there, listener. It's Matthew. You've come looking for an episode of the Children's Book Podcast, and you've found it. Hooray! But you're probably wondering why the name of the podcast has changed. After eight years of doing the Children's Book Podcast, I began a new career as head of podcasts at A Kid's Company About, where I now oversee a podcast network dedicated to producing original content that talks up to kids, centers the things going on in their world, and engages and challenges how they see the world and themselves. All of the episodes of the Children's Book Podcast are still here, but now, if you're subscribed, you'll get new episodes of Worth Noting, a kid's podcast about current events, hosted by me. Something for you and the young people in your life to enjoy together. Enjoy this episode, and I hope you'll check out Worth Noting and other podcasts from a kid's company about... Support for the Children's Book Podcast comes from 12 by 12. Picture book authors need to be fairly prolific to be published. That's why members of 12 by 12 aim to write one picture book draft a month. Through an online forum, monthly webinars, a private Facebook group, and more, members enjoy the accountability, support, and motivation of a fantastic community of authors and illustrators. Visit 12by12challenge.com slash membership for more information. I feel like whatever, especially for like grades four, five, six, I feel like the best nonfiction books for them, what they would really like and get excited about is not even being produced. And we don't even know exactly what it like. I, I try to like figure out. I, I'm actually in a group of nonfiction authors. We meet once a month and by Zoom. And we this is one of the things we talk about. What would it look like? for there to be a book that this kind of middle grade audience would go gaga over. Yeah. It's hard to figure out, but I, I don't think it's being made and I don't, I don't think there's publishers out there asking this question. This is the Children's Book Podcast, episode number 669. I'm your host, Matthew Winner. Today, I'm joined by Melissa Stewart, the author of Ick, Delightfully Disgusting Animal Dinners, Dwellings and Defenses and the editor of Nonfiction Writers Dig Deep. Melissa is an unwavering advocate for nonfiction in all places, whether that's at story times, in classroom instruction, on book lists, or wherever we'll make space for it. And whenever she talks nonfiction advocacy, I am here for it. Please welcome my guest, Melissa Stewart, author of Ick, Delightfully Disgusting Animal Dinners, Dwellings, and Defenses, and the editor of Nonfiction Writers Dig Deep. Uh, my name is Melissa Stewart, and I use the pronouns she and her. I am a children's book author that focuses on science topics, mostly nonfiction books, and I'm be happy to be here with you today, Matthew. Melissa Stewart, welcome back. You know, we were thinking, you and I were talking about when we last talked, and the only thing I could think about, and I, and you were on the show, but the only thing I could remember back to was that dinner we shared in, was it Ohio? Were we in Ohio when we had the peach tree dinner? Yes, I think so. Somewhere. Somewhere ages ago. I mean, COVID makes everything feel like decades ago. I know that's not true, but I remember sharing a meal with you and 
and that was really where I, I think I first got to know you as this uh, unwavering advocate for nonfiction and, and really for, for all readers. And as you know, I, I follow you a lot on social, and I, I always love the work that you're doing very visibly and at large. And so I'm super excited to talk today because we have two books that I think show... I was going to say both of those hats that you wear. That's not really the the, the accurate way to, to say it. But I think as listeners go on through our conversation, they'll understand what I mean. Um, that we have a, a book that you've made for children and we have a book that you've made for, for adults, for teachers. Maybe that's the best way I can say it. So welcome back. How's life? Everything good? Yep. Things are going well. How's nonfiction in the world? You feel like nonfiction is doing okay? I, you know, I'm so encouraged by the outcome of the ALA Youth Media Awards. Oh. There were nonfiction books in almost every award category. It was astonishing and exciting and invigorating. I love, Melissa, that we were on the other podcast I do on Kidlet these days, we were talking about how, you know, at the for people that are unaware, at the Youth Media Awards where they give the Newberry and they give the Caldecott and the Porabel Prey and all these different awards, those committees work in a silo. They do not talk to one another. And yet to have representation and and different uh, formats of books, different voices, different genres represented in that way is really something special. I, a, a speculative fiction or a speculative fiction sci-fi book won the John Steptoe Award this year, which was like, this has never happened before. <laughs> There's just things like that going on that are wild and wonderful and to know that this also helps to open the door for more voices to be heard in publishing and then uh therefore for more access to readers uh is a wonderful thing so yay for that yay for that so melissa yeah, I, oh go ahead i'm sorry i cut you off no that's fine that's fine no you know me i just want to celebrate all things that's all i do right we could, <laughs> we could just have a, 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 a talk alone here, filling up our time talking about those books that were recognized. I know that. But I also think it's super awesome that in one of these books we're talking about today, you actually center a lot of those voices. So we'll get to that first. Why don't we talk about Ick, Delightfully Disgusting Animal Dinners, Dwellings, and Defenses. Melissa, this is a, one, it's a gorgeously designed book, but two, it's a book that I can say proudly, I have um, all sorts of bends and nicks and dog ears and things on this page because my kids have carried this book everywhere. And I, I'm just saying that to tell you that that doesn't happen in my household. Usually the books, we read them at night. They sit beside the bedstand. They come back down to the library. They, there's certain places where books sort of travel in in a cycle in our house. And this one has been carried everywhere by both the five and ten year old and left open, abused, loved in the greatest ways. <laughs> That's thank you for sharing that. That that nothing makes me happier than that because really all I want to do is share the beauty and wonder and fascinating facts about the natural world with kids and um, hope that they come to appreciate and respect and admire the natural world as much as I do. When you when you are thinking about writing a book like Ick, or maybe you were approached by National Geographic Kids, I don't know how that worked, but when you're thinking about composing an entire book of all of the things that, that, that we humans 
view as sort of revolting or gross or repulsive uh, in the animal kingdom. How, where where do you start? I assume it's like a life lived where you've researched a lot of things in the past. But tell me about how this book came to be. Well, believe it or not, this book actually started all the way back in 1996, which is way before most of the kids that would read it were even born. It traces back to, uh, I was lucky enough to be chosen by the American Museum of Natural History to go on a safari to Africa for three weeks. And on one of the, the first days, uh, we saw jackals and one of the, the female jackals was up chucking her dinner that she had eaten so that her youngsters could get a meal. So they just kind of uh, lap up the basically the vomit. And I'm like, whoa, that is crazy. And um, <laughs> the next day, we saw jerry nooks, which are a kind of an antelope that have a, a long neck. They sort of look like a cross between a gazelle and a giraffe. They're much smaller than a giraffe. And we, again, we saw it um, feeding and we, the guide was telling us that they regurgitate their food as many as four times. So they, like a cow chews cud, it's the yeah. same kind of thing. There's actually more than 250 animals in the world that do this. And they, these guys remunch their lunch up to four times and just those two things happening right back to back they made me curious I'm like wow what other animals um, use vomit as a food source or have that involved in in how they get their food and their nutrition and I started keeping a list and I have had I have been keeping that list since 1996 and as I developed that list, I actually started to go in other directions. I'm like, oh, well, there's also animals that use poop in all kinds of interesting ways. And there's animals that use pee in all kinds of interesting ways. I'm turning and, immediately into like an eight-year-old boy, but it's wonderful. Thank you. <laughs> and it got to the point where I had, you know, maybe 25 animals on all these different lists. And I said, you know what? I want to make this into a book series. I want to do a series of uh, multiple picture books. And so I wrote a proposal and I sent it to National Geographic. The reason that I chose them is because I thought that this was a book that really needed to have photographs. Oh, yeah. And National Geographic has one of the best photo archives in the entire world. And they said, we love this. Let's make it one book. And it will be a whopping 112 pages and kids won't believe how much great information is in there. So the book is about how it's called Ick, Delightfully Disgusting Animal Dinners, Dwellings and Defenses. And it's all about ways that animals use things like pee and poop and vomit to either uh, catch or eat their food to make their homes or to protect themselves from enemies. And there are 45 animal examples. And um, thanks to National Geographic, it has an amazing design, beautiful photos. And I really think this is a book that kids are going to love. Oh, yeah. The layout is so pretty. And one that my five-year-old in particular will open to random pages and be like, Daddy, look, did you see this? And it's like, oh, yeah. Oh, we're looking at that one again. Oh, good. The, the mites that live on our eyelashes. Thanks. That's great. <laughs> Thank you. This is my nightmare. Thank you. <laughs> we also and there's love... This, there's, oh, go ahead. 
there's so many fascinating facts. It's just that, you know, the animal world is so incredible. And it's it's just it's exciting to be able to learn all these cool things that they do, but oh, then yeah. to share it with kids and then go and have a school visit with kids and then have them echo some of the facts back to me and to just to see their excitement and their enthusiasm. It's so rewarding. I love we were talking about the design of this book and the photographs really help and it's really large dimensions, too. So it's, you know, as big as my my daughter can hold. And. I, I I wonder when you were writing this, if because I know the way that you write other books, so it, it, it speaks to me that this is probably the design choice too. But to have sort of a, a title running across the page of the animal and then uh, a captivating paragraph or two setting us up for what the ick part is, but then all of these sort of extra side captions that are blocked off in... Well, in different um, graphic ways, uh, that that sort of it almost feels like a like a playing card. Do you know what I mean? Where it's like, and now here's some fast facts, and here's the big description, and here's the whatever. That that sort of um, walkthrough of descriptions and tying together different animals that do similar things, I found really drove us from one page to another to another to look at those different references and and what interesting or weird or surprising thing are we going to find out on this next page is that was that design already at your at the forefront of your mind as you were thinking through how to execute this book yeah so when i i so the proposal that i submitted had that that main text that you're um talking about and then it also had the, the various different little, um, one of them is called a stat stack, which yeah. is just kind of some fun facts about where they live and how big they are and what their predators are. But then there's also um, an extra ick section because I thought they would just go gaga over that. And I wanted them, I wanted this book to be very browsable. I wanted kids to be able to dip in and out um, as much as they wanted to. I wanted them to be able to share this with their friends and look at it together, which is why I suggested having a bigger format. And I really thought that having all these pieces um, would make the book very interesting to kids because they wouldn't, especially if they're, you know, maybe kids that don't love to read or haven't met the right book yet, having these smaller chunks is less intimidating and, and more, it really is, it's kind of like eye candy. I agree that um, I, I often think about my ten-year-old who doesn't fan who doesn't he I don't think he would self-identify as a reader, and yet when you have a really I think strongly designed nonfiction book that allows your eyes to transfer across the page, not just take in one static image and then move to the next page, but rather something that really almost is holding tension on the page itself. Where do you want to look? Where are you going to focus now? That, that draws him in so much. And the fact that he does read just a sentence or two here, or just reads the stats this time, or reads the entire paragraph or the entire page, that. In in the fact that a the the nonfiction format in this in particular this book allows the reader to navigate 
information in that way. You are welcome and invited to just read the pictures of this book, or you can just read the stats, or you can flip around any order you want, or by section, or use the index. When a book allows that space for that certain reader to be used however they feel they are connecting with it in that moment, I feel like that's a really powerful tool in compelling a reader and one that I, I see in my son in particular all the time. And I, I, I'm, I'm grateful that this format does that so well. I totally agree. And I, I'm not sure what your son would say. This might be an interesting question to ask him, but I've actually, I've written some other books that are sort of in this style too. And what kids sometimes say to me is, uh, no, I'm not reading. I'm, I'm learning stuff. Yeah. I so, don't think he would think it as reading. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and to sort of add to that, creating a book like this is no easy task. The designers at National Geographic are amazing. And it, it takes a lot of skill um, as a graphic designer to understand how to create the various sections so that it's obvious to a reader how they should navigate the, the page. So it's wh where you place the stuff, um, the colors you use, the interaction between the different components. If you look at this book, you know right away what you're supposed to read first, what you're supposed to read second, what you're supposed to look at, how your eye is supposed to move across the page. That is all very intentional on the designer's part. And I think that they don't always get the credit they deserve for, for what they bring to it. I would agree. The color blocking in the different sections with the defenses and the dwellings and things like that, the um, keeping consistent uh, blocking for things like that extra ick is always, always, always in the bottom right corner. So if you just want to rapidly compare that extra ick, all you have to do is, is lift up the bottom corner of the page to get to the next extra ick. And I think that that, it, as you're saying, it really takes some expert designing to have a book be used in that way. I think about seeking specific answers. So we want to use it as a reference tool. I want to find information about this very specific animal and how that also serves it too, that you've got kids search indexes. We can look up words. We can uh, look up in the table of contents where a specific thing is. But if you also remember, oh, I know that that's on the page with the duck and it's purple, which means it's in the back section. Um, all of that is is thoughtful design in order to help provide the easiest access to information to children. That That's, I would say it this way, you can tell when that doesn't get executed well. So when it does, it feels easy or natural, but you can always tell when it's not done well. <laughs> yeah. And that's one of the things that I so admire about National Geographic's books. Yeah, they're, they're beautiful, aren't they? They're beautiful. You've had yeah. wonderful books um, come out that are, that are illustrated as well. And that can be a really beautiful thing too. I think that, well, I wonder if you, Melissa, have any thoughts on as you're writing a particular book, if it feels like photographs would best serve it or illustrations would best serve it. Do you ever have a, a sense of that? Or maybe even do you have a say in that when you are selling a book to a publisher? So I, I have a very strong sense of that, and I have mm. a very strong sense of what 
you, you know, editors will often ask me, what's your package? So they don't want to just sit from, an, from a nonfiction author. So this is different from writing fiction. I have a very big say in the design and the style of the art. Um, and I have the um, opportunity and also responsibility of looking at sketches multiple times to make sure that the information is accurate. Um, but I always, for example, I have a book called Summertime Sleepers, mm -hmm. Animals That Estivate, which estivation is the opposite of hibernation, coming out in um, April. And for that book, because the animals are sleeping, I wanted it to have a very lyrical voice to it. And so illustration works well for that. Um, also, because these are because these animals are sleeping, well, you can't get photos of animals that are sleeping inside their dens. So that's another reason that it needed to be illustrated. Um, but then for, for this book, Ick, I, I just wanted some, some of the images of these animals going about their daily lives are so incredible. And I really just wanted kids to see those. I think a lot of kids prefer books, animal books with photos. They, they sometimes say to me, I like photos because then I know it's real. Oh, okay. Yeah. I, so I, I can see that. I, I, I would on the, on the same side say the story really inform the, the, the text really to me, I can uh, agree informs what, what feels like the best fit. I think about like your, your feathers book so right. beautifully works with illustration in a way that it just feels like, yeah, that's the right way to do it. Um, and that's part, I guess, publishing magic in the right illustrator or the right uh, approach or the right delivery of, of the information. But, but yeah, I get it. I think that's true. I think sometimes the art is part of the hook yeah. of the book. And I would say that that's definitely true for Feathers, the illustrations that Sarah Brannon did, and, and also the sensibility to it. And um, that that's all just critical to what the book is. Um, and this, you know, this, she also illustrated Summertime Sleepers, by the way. Yeah. And once again, she cool. brought some incredible visual elements that you really couldn't have done with a photo illustrated book. So I, I enjoy doing both because they each have a different challenge. Yeah. And so I, I like, I like, I like challenges. I... And so I like to do some photo illustrated books and some that are uh, illustrated by artists. I will say though, and this is just as you were saying, it, it came to mind. Those photos where where you said a kid um, might say, "Well, then I know that it's real." My daughter, the five year old, was looking at this book. Um, the, you know, on the back you have the picture of the the bird that's like throwing up stuff. Yes. Um, yep. And she says, "Daddy, is that real?" So mm. the the power of how we can put a photo in front of someone and even then they, they might still not believe it really strikes me as, as where in some cases that photo uh, you're right, might actually have a little bit of extra oomph to show, no, 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 this is real. It's been documented. Um, you might not believe it. And that's wild. I also love in your book when you have like animals that there's a, a rabbit or something, there's a, there's some animal where you talk about pee where I'm like, oh, look, it's just like a cute 
bunny or hamster thing or some, whatever it was. I can't picture what it is now. But <laughs> you read it and you're like, oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> so there's there's that sort of uh, fun play with with photo that you can do that serves in, and as you're saying, in just a, a different way than illustration can serve. I like it. Well done, yeah, Melissa. Way to way to freak <laughs> all of us out in the winter household. <laughs> Do you have um you, you you mentioned about this this safari and holding on to this image of 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 the jackals regurgitating and things like that. Do you have any other um just out of curiosity uh as a fan, do you have any other animals in this book that that either you think about a lot, you come to mind a lot as as ones that you just think about the fact about them a lot or that kids do one of the one of my favorites is the bombardier beetle and i first encountered them i took um a a course at cornell like a summer course um in from this very famous entomologist scientist who studies insects and he introduced me to bombardier beetles which are animals that basically release this hot noxious spray out of their butts to um, deter their enemies. And the story that I have in this book is a true story about a Japanese common toad that ate a bombardier beetle, and 88 minutes later, the beetle popped out of its mouth. And the reason is it was inside its stomach for 88 minutes, blasting it, blasting it, blasting it. And finally, the toad is like, this is not worth it. And then, so the so the when the beetle came out, it was covered with slime, but after just a few minutes, it crawled away. <laughs> what that, an incredible! That is wild! Oh my gosh! Keep if you ever get swallowed whole, just keep shooting things out of your butt, and maybe you'll be and, able to live to tell the story another day. <laughs> and scientists caught the whole thing on film. You can actually go and watch the video on YouTube. It's astonishing. Oh, that's so wild! I love that. Oh my word! Okay, so so let's move to the other book. You've got this this other book that um, well I, I don't know. Did it just come out or is it about to come out? Um, nonfiction it, writers it, dig deep. It did just come out. It came out November sixteenth, and this so this is a book I'm really excited about. It's an anthology that includes essays by fifty of my nonfiction writing colleagues. They're all award winning uh, children's book authors who focus on nonfiction. And the kind of the purpose of this book is that as we do school visits and talk to teachers and talk to librarians, we sometimes get the sense that they're not teaching, that nonfiction writing instruction doesn't match what we really do. And that a lot of teachers and just, I think, kids and people in the general um, just in the general population, think that writing nonfiction is, okay, you do some research and you cobble together a bunch of facts and there you have your book. But the truth is that there's also another piece that often goes unseen and unappreciated. And that's basically that a little, just like writing fiction, a little piece of our heart is in every book that we create. create. And a, who we are as people, um, our beliefs, our experiences in the world, our personalities, they all influence how we focus a book. So we can come up with a topic 
Um, but then how we focus that topic, the lens that we present in our book is completely individual and it, it really depends a lot on how we view that information. So you could have um, books that are on the same topic, several books that are on the same topic, and they're completely different because each person, each author approaches it in a different way. And the way that this comes to kids writing, what, what we see is often kids will do the research and then they jump in and start writing immediately. But yeah. there's a giant piece of pre-writing that need, that should, that needs to go in there, that, that is in there for us professional authors, but often aren't for kids. And that's a period of time when we synthesize our thinking. And so this is the reason I know in schools, copying sources, plagiarism is a big issue. This isn't an issue for us. It's nothing that something that we don't even think about because as we're putting the information through our own lens, through our own sensibility, we are coming up with things that no one has ever written before because no one else is us. And so this was our opportunity to kind of bring that message to the writing community. Although what we're finding is that the book is also really resonating with children's book authors who are interested in writing nonfiction. So that's, and it's exciting that we're, that they're also finding value in this book. That's wonderful. I love in the beginning that you've got um, quotes from a number of the different contributors about nonfiction. I'd like to just read one that Don Tate uh, said, I study my subjects lives trying to understand their inner truth. I need to know what makes them tick, but I also consider what makes me tick, my inner truth. When our truths are in alignment, that's a story I feel like I can tell. And Don writes right. wonderful nonfiction, uh, often um, biographies is where I, I most know him focusing of, of black authors, of black individuals. Um, and it's neat to hear him say that he's looking not just at that person's life, but where his life intersects, where it resonates. That's neat. I, I, I like, too, that you've got, because these are uh, really a collection of, of essays, as it were, you've got folks talking about their process in the context of books that we know, all these wonderful uh, full-color illustrations of their books, of, of, of the authors themselves, of of some pieces they drew on inspiration and, and I feel like walking through their processes in a, in the way that they are, they are sort of sharing these, not testimonials, that's the wrong word, but the way that they're, they're talking narratively through these experiences, I think for me as an educator resonates with how to talk about, nonfiction to children, which is, I think, the point of your book to say that, like, no, 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 nonfiction authors are doing really complex things as they're writing these books. So let's see the person behind the book. Um, this perhaps is, is, you know, you're, you're sort of working in this field where we know in libraries that we buy these these big sets of books that are like, here's the whole series of I don't know, 20 different animal books or, or different biomes or different whatevers that we, we, that they sell to libraries to, to boost our, our, 
uh, nonfiction collections, and those are really great, but but they are different from the authors that you are centering in this book. I'm not trying to yeah, talk down. I'm, I'm catching myself, Melissa, realizing, like, I'm not trying to talk down about those books. Those books have their place. They are good. Children love them. That is a good thing. We are talking about, though, when you talk about the craft of writing nonfiction, uh, it's that it's deeper than, as you said, just, just researching facts and laying them down on paper. I like that you mentioned that the book is full color. That was something that was really important to me. I wanted everyone to be able to see and enjoy not only all the beautiful book covers that are in the book, but the photos of the authors, because one of the, the missions, one of the goals in this book is to highlight and humanize nonfiction authors. I think if you talk to most librarians, most teachers, most kids, they can probably name 10 uh, fiction authors that they love, they may not be able to name a single nonfiction author. And there's a few reasons for that. Number one, how books are um, shelved in libraries is by topic instead of by the author's last name. But also nonfiction authors are rarely the subject of author studies. They, uh, nonfiction books are rarely used as read-alouds. And so people don't always think about the people behind the nonfiction books in the same way that they do with fiction books. And so that that's another thing in this book is you can see the people, you can hear their stories, and you can go out and discover their books if you aren't already familiar with them. I think, Melissa, about how often we teach picture books, and if we're teaching a fiction picture book, we might often say, you know, we read the cover of the book, it's written by this author, it's by this illustrator. And I think the very natural inclination is to be like, and this is the author of these other books, or this is the illustrator of these other books. Um, but I, I don't, not that I'm dropping into classrooms constantly, but I don't often <laughs> see nonfiction treated that same way. Often I feel like we're using nonfiction where we're like, well, now we're going to read this book because we're studying this topic in science or social studies. And so this book goes along with it rather than again giving it giving it the 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 space it needs to hold which is you're reading aloud a story to a child why are you treating it like it's any different than that whether it's nonfiction or fiction we grow up hearing stories spoken to us that are fiction and nonfiction why would we treat them any differently when it's a, a physical book in front of us um and to be able to read a book by Melissa Stewart and be like, well, you know, some of the other books Melissa has written are on this one and this one and this one, and know that that could actually drive inquiry in the classroom. Oh, we read this book about disgusting animals, but you mean she also wrote a thing about, I don't know, uh, whatever the topic is, about feathers, about um, hibernating animals, about this, about seasonal changes. I think that that in the same way can get kids excited to read other books by a fiction author, can get kids to read what other ways we can explore the world at the hands of a nonfiction author. Uh, also, it, like you said, you put a little heart of yourself into the books that you write, which then tells me that the more I get to know this wide scope of books that a nonfiction author writes, the more I get to know them, which is a pretty cool thing. Yeah, I, uh, exactly. And there, there's so many, so many beautifully written nonfiction books that would work well as a read aloud. A Giant Squid by Candace Fleming, that would make a fantastic 
read aloud or the youngest Mark marcher by cynthia levinson oh beautiful um, books yeah have you read aloud to i don't know if you've read aloud to a class i have read aloud to a class honeybee is it called honeybee the newest one that candace yes. and eric did together again beautiful yes. book that that like the giant squid book is just made with these massive dimensions so you can just live in the illustration but also uh, a beautiful text that that um engages us in a way that like you said, that you can just see the the author's heart in it and how much that topic was so important to the author that she wanted to share it with us. I always think about that. What compels you, Melissa, to write? We have this book in front of us, which tells me that it was so important to you that you wanted to craft it for children to hear as well. Yeah, and the, just the idea, too, that, I, you know, I'm bombarded with ideas all the time, but only some of them can become books. And so what is it that speaks to me about a particular topic or a way of focusing the topic that makes me say, yes, this is what I want to go ahead and spend the next two, three, four years of my life doing because I'm so passionate about sharing it with kids. I think about some of the authors that you have featured in this book and right away, probably because it's on the cover as well, uh, the Roots of Rap is on the cover. So right away, I think of Carol Boston Weatherford and how she, as an author, uh, you can see the variance in her voice based on what topic she's sharing, based on what book, what content she's trying to share with the readers. And knowing, too, that we can, um, we talk about voice all the time in the classroom, but it does, having this conversation with you does take me out of myself and wonder, well, how often have I ever heard a teacher talk about voice, not just voice in nonfiction, but voice with with a single nonfiction author and how voice changes depending on content, which just strikes I me think, as, yeah. why Carol's- don't we do this? And I wonder if it's, I, I don't know, maybe you have some thoughts about why some teachers don't do that. And perhaps it's sort of the same reason why we don't talk about certain subjects because they're Maybe some teachers don't know how to. I think often about poetry and how a lot of folks don't seem to know how to teach poetry. And I I always wonder about that because poetry feels like, similarly to nonfiction, such a natural fit for children. Yeah, I'm hoping the work of Amanda Gorman might actually shake that up Mm. because, gosh, her poetry is just, it's so beautiful, but it's also so accessible. Yep. And... I, I can see people doing studies of, of her work. I mean, I mean her books are, are coming. They're on the way. They're on the way, yeah. Excited to see them. Uh, yeah, I wish that, that more classrooms, more teachers would do author studies. I, I think looking at the voice across Carol Boston Weatherford's book, she's such a talented um, poet her her language is so gorgeous but as you say it does vary and she's she um, uses many different formats and many different styles sometimes she um, mixes facts with fiction in different ways uh, I sort of feel like she sometimes rips off herself I, I'm I'm astonished by <laughs> I her love work. that she's so uh, I She's just so talented. She's making an incredible contribution to the world of children's literature. Well, she is just one of 50 voices centered in 
this book and gosh of hundreds of books centered in this book uh, with that each author brings up as well as as classroom connections I feel like much like reading Ick and my five-year-old and ten-year-old reading Ick I feel like different teachers are going to access this book in different ways and read it different ways I love that so much of it comes from the way you've interviewed and invited different voices onto your blog and so it feels in that way bite size. I'm not looking at an overwhelming, you know, 40 page chapter on whatever thing that I'm going to get lost in. I'm looking at something that I can read an excerpt a day if I wanted to just to get my brain thinking about whatever content, but also the way these authors write their pieces uh, is very much a way that I can share that information directly with children. So kudos to you and everyone contributing to this um, to this book, to nonfiction writers dig deep, because I, I really feel, Melissa, that it, it feels like a, a wonderfully thought out and and designed and delivered book that that I hope will have a great impact on on teachers and on instruction. Thanks. I I hope that they are able to you know you we have these teacher time saver tables that sort of give a sneak peek into what they're about. So I, I, rather than having to read the book cover to cover, which I know takes a lot of time, they, teachers can find the exact um, essays that are gonna be perfect for whatever lesson they might be doing at, the, at that moment. And then in the final section of each chapter, there are um, activity ideas and teaching strategies that allow them to integrate the ideas and the essays into their existing curriculum. Yeah, wonderful, wonderful stuff. Well, I wish you continued success and joy and love and wonder with and alongside children, but also in what you write and bringing that to children, Melissa, and bringing it to classrooms and and helping um, raise that tide for all teachers and for all nonfiction voices. Uh, thank you so much for your time and chatting with me today. You're welcome. Thanks, Matthew. Melissa, before we go, I want to give you an opportunity, as we did last time, to speak directly to your readers, and we'll do it this way. I'll say that I'm seeing a library full of children tomorrow morning. Melissa, well, many of us are. Is there a message that I can bring to them from you? I, you know, I would love them to just go out and explore. That's the message that I always try to share with kids. And I think it's especially good right now in the pandemic when a lot of the normal activities that they're involved in have been canceled or might look a little bit different than they do, uh, they have in the past. But I think the natural world is, first of all, it's full of beauty and wonder and there's nothing so magical as spending time in a natural place, but also nature can be a sanctuary. It can be a place to feel calm and relaxed and centered in a time when there seems like there's a lot, a lot of um, uncertainty in the world. And so I would just like to encourage kids to, to spend some time outdoors. Hi, I'm 
Ellen Leventhal, and I'm the author of A Flood of Kindness, illustrated by the very talented Blythe Russo, and releasing on April 13th, 2021 from Worthy Kids. It features a girl who struggles with feelings of anger and sadness when her home is destroyed in a flood until she finds hope in the healing power of kindness. To learn more about A Flood of Kindness and my other books, please go to www.ellenleventhal.com. The Children's Book Podcast is recorded and produced by Matthew Winner in his library studio in Ellicott City, Maryland. You can subscribe to the podcast and access the archive of over 650 episodes at matthewcwinner.com. Our theme music is by Poddington Bear, care of the Free Music Archive. Want to help the show? Become a patron at patreon.com slash matthewcwinner, and your support and contributions will directly support and impact the work here. And always, writing a review on iTunes or sharing the podcast with friends through Facebook, Twitter, word of mouth, or any other means helps reach more listeners, which leads to more content and more amazing guests. And that's a very good thing indeed. We know you value what you put in front of your kids, especially when it comes to screens and podcasts. That's why we're excited to share a new podcast from our friends at Sleepiest, creating bedtime stories to help your kids fall asleep fast. Hello, Abby here. If you've got children and find bedtimes a struggle, I'd like to tell you about Coco Sleep, a children's story podcast designed to make bedtime a dream. Coco Sleep turns a chaotic bedtime into cosy bonding time. The stories are delivered in a pace that gently slows. Rumour has it that no one's ever heard an ending. So search Coco Sleep on your favourite podcast app and let's make bedtime a dream. That's K-O-K-O Sleep and I'll see you there.